I'd like to start this morning by asking a question. And my question to you is, have you ever had somebody challenge the validity of the Bible, either directly to you or maybe you saw something on, on YouTube or Facebook where there's a professor or an atheist and they're, they're, they're just basically claiming that the Bible is full of myths and legends like other religions and that the, really the details are, are made up. Uh, one of the youth group kids one time told us that they had a teacher that told them that the Bible is kind of like a portrait that you paint of somebody. You know, you've seen a portrait of George Washington, you don't see the wrinkles and you don't see the blemishes on his face and his hair is, is combed and everything. So the teacher said the Bible's kind of like that. It's kind of cleaned up and the rough edges sort of worn down so that you have a picture of Jesus as God that maybe is not accurate. So one of the things that I think is that that's not just a problem for our youth. You know, our youth are often challenged by those types of things, but I think that, you know, many of us also face challenges like that. And I can relate a story when I was in my early 30s, I had three co-workers and they knew I went to church and they knew I was a Christian. And what they would tell me is, you know, Greg, there's more evidence that UFOs are real than Jesus is real. And I would always say, well, you can believe what you want, but, you know, the, the Bible's true. And they said, well, how do you know? And back then, I really didn't care to get engaged in arguments with people. And I said, well, listen, I know it's true. You guys can research it yourself, and you figure it out if you believe it's true. And they came back to me and said, you know, Greg, there are eyewitnesses to UFOs. You see, there's a police officer in Maine, and he can tell you, he's told a story. It's in the newspapers. He tells a story of he saw a UFO hovering over a, a field. That's a police officer. You can believe that person. And then I would say, again, I'm not really interested in arguing. Well, listen, I know you guys are good guys, so if I make it to heaven, I'll put a good word in for you when I get there. But that wasn't enough for them. They came back with a book. And this book had pictures of UFOs, and they opened up the book on my desk, and they said, look, Greg, there's pictures of UFOs. I mean, what more evidence do you want? I don't think you have any pictures of Jesus, right? And so, like I said, usually they would end with, you know, me making some flippant comment about, you know, God, God bless you or good luck to you if you want to believe in UFOs. But, you know, over the years what I realized was those three coworkers of mine, they were better apologists for the presence of UFOs than I was for Christ. And at that time, I didn't have on the, the tip of my tongue facts or or details that I could return and say, oh, well, you have a, uh, maybe you have a police officer who can give evidence, but I have four gospel eyewitnesses, and they're just as true as that police officer in Maine. You know, I didn't know at that time that I could actually come back with some details. And what I'd like to do today is kind of examine this, this Bible that we have in the detail of it, sort of zoom in from that 30,000-foot view of the Bible that we have that, God is loving and, and the theology of, of Jesus Christ and Christianity. And I want to look at maybe even a specific word in the Bible that we can look at and have confidence that the facts of the Bible are true. It's historical. These are real people. So when I hear people say that it's just myths and legends or 
you know, King David didn't actually exist. He's just sort of, a, of an example or an or a archetype of what Christians and Jews believe. You know, I think that we can come back and say, look, uh, even though we may have things in the Bible that are troublesome, like one of the arguments is the Bible is so inconsistent that you can't believe it, and people will just point at the genealogy of Jesus. And we can do that with the Bibles in the, in the back of our church, and we can look at Matthew 1 and Luke 3, and we compare the two genealogies, and they don't have the same name. Or we can open up to the last chapter of Mark in our Bibles, and it says, hey, some of the older manuscripts don't have this chapter. All right, but that's okay, because we're going to drill down into some of, the, some of the details of the Bible that I think can help us have confidence that what we have is the truth. I'm going to do that using three methods. First, we're going to take a look at some archaeology. Uh, is archaeology, is it confirming the stories and people and places of events in the Bible? Or is it disconfirming the things that we have written down for us? The second way we're going to do is we're going to look at some ancient sources that are not the Bible that attest to the reality of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, we're going to look at some unintended or unintentional corroboration both outside the Bible and within the Gospels themselves. So the first thing I want to talk about is if you look at almost any archaeologist and they give you a list of the, the top discoveries in, in archaeology, almost all of them, they don't necessarily have to be Christian lists, they're going to say the Dead Sea Scrolls. And one of the things about the Dead Sea Scrolls that we that are important to us in, in our faith is that the fact of the Dead Sea Scrolls, when it was discovered in, the, in 1946, 1947, and then they excavated all the other caves, what they found was about two to 300 biblical manuscripts from the time of two or 300 years before Christ to about 100 years after Christ. And of all of those manuscripts, you know, they have the whole Old Testament in full or in part, except for the book of Esther. And one of the most impressive is they have an entire book of Isaiah. And what they found was that two to three hundred years before Christ, the same Isaiah that people had then is the same Isaiah that we have in our Bible today. It gives us confidence that we are not just cleaning up the Bible for our own purposes. Two to three hundred years before Jesus was even born, the Isaiah scroll is the same, essentially, as it is today. It pushes back our, our earliest known source back to before Jesus. And speaking of Isaiah, I'm going to turn to Isaiah chapter 20 in verse 1. It says, In that year... It says, in the year that the supreme commander sent by Sargon, king of Assyria, came to Ashad and attacked and captured it, at that time the Lord spoke through Isaiah, son of Amoz, and he said to him, take off your sackcloth. And it goes on to give a prophecy about Egypt and Cush. Now, Sargon, King Sargon, happened to be unknown to any historian prior to the 1840s. Accidentally, in northern Iraq, they bumped into Sargon's palace. 
Nobody had heard of Sargon. They bump into his palace, and now all of a sudden we know everything about Sargon. He's a, he's a well-attested historical king in ancient, uh, ancient times. Well, why would that be important? Well, for me, the Bible was the only place you ever saw the name Sargon. The Bible was the history of King Sargon. Nobody else had that, but we do. It's a fact that we can attest to and we can point to and say, look, we're getting it right. And as an aside, one of the things to notice is the historical fact is mixed in in the same paragraphs with the, with the spiritual. The historical and the spiritual are always being interconnected in the Bible. So how about King David? I mentioned him just a minute ago. As late as 1994, there was a professor named David Phillips from Sheffield University over in England. And he said this. He said, I'm not the only scholar who suspects that, that the figure of King David is about as historical as King Arthur. Now, he must be pretty smart. He's got a PhD uh, attached to his name. And you know what? He, he probably didn't have uh, the history. He didn't have any history or any archaeological finds about King David, or he didn't know of them. At the same time, another critic said, you know what, King David is probably just a local tribal chieftain, maybe a couple hundred people, and they're waving sticks around and yelling curses. So this is like 1994. And it's true that they didn't have uh, anything outside the Bible about King David until in the ancient city of Dan, which is in northern Israel, they found a stone stella. And what a stella is, basically it's a monument, it's, it's taller than it is wide. And in ancient times, what kings used to do is when they took over a place, they would erect these, these small monuments and they would list how, tell how great they were and how they defeated the local king and, you know, pay your taxes to me now instead of the old king is what they basically did. So this commemorative stella was found, stella was found in 1993. So Professor David, uh, Philip Davies, he must not have known about that. And what's interesting about this stone stella is it's the first archaeological reference we have, what it says is the house of David. And the stone tablet dates to about 200 years after the reign of King David. And what's important about that is the term house of David means the dynasty of David. So we can't have a King David who's a small local chieftain with a couple hundred people if 200 years later, this king of Assyria is, is conquering a king from the house of David, from the dynasty of David. That alone puts to bed the notion that King David was a myth. He's true. He's an actual person. And, of course, Solomon and following him uh, are, all, are also true. And since that time, there's been increasingly archaeological finds that have attested to the real King David. They even think they may have found his palace. And that was in, only in 2005. So that's some Old Testament stuff. Of course, there's, there's a lot of other archaeological finds we can talk about. But some Old Testament stuff. You know, some people will say that Jesus was not crucified in the way that we think he was. Maybe he, that wasn't a cross. Maybe it was more of a scaffolding. And that they didn't use nails. They used ropes instead of nails. And one of the reasons people would say that is because they don't have any finds that would indicate that our 
version of the crucifixion was true. But in 1968, they did find a heel bone of someone who had been crucified, and in it, they had a nail through it. It was curved at the end. It must have hit a knot or something, and they couldn't pull it out. So we do have a heel bone of somebody who was crucified in the manner that Jesus was. It, back then, it wasn't like you went to the Home Depot and bought a box of crucifixion nails. So after you crucified somebody, you had to pull the nails out and then reuse them for the next poor soul that was going to be crucified. But that tells us that, in fact, that was a method the Romans used to put people to death. How about 2004, the Pool of Siloam, where Jesus healed the blind man? They uncovered that accidentally. They were trying to build a water park with water slides and pools, and instead they found the Pool of Siloam. And now you can go there and, and see that place. There's also been a discovery of a bone box. On it, they have the name of, of uh, James, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus. Could that be the James that they're talking about in the Bible who's leading the church? the early church in Jerusalem. So, without getting too much further into any archaeological finds, I think we can say that archaeology keeps confirming the Bible. It doesn't, it's, what it's not doing is not disconfirming what we believe. And if those people are real, if the people and places and events are real, can we also have confidence that those lessons, those spiritual and theological lessons we learn in those same pages are also real? I happen to think that you can. All right, stepping away from archaeology, I'm going to look at a couple of historians now and what they say about Jesus, sort of contemporary to when the Gospels were being written. First one I'm going to talk about is a man named Josephus. You may have heard his name before. He was a Jewish historian, born about four years after Jesus. And in the year 93 or so, about, same, about the same time that uh, John was writing his Gospel, uh, Josephus was commissioned by the Romans to write a history of the Jews. You see, Josephus was a Jewish general in the revolt against the Romans in the late 60s. He was captured. He turned traitor. Uh, well, the Jews think he turned traitor because uh, his men were surrounded and uh, 38 of his men committed suicide rather than be taken prisoner, but he decided he would rather surrender to the Romans. Uh, he became friends with one of their generals, and then they commissioned him to write a history of the Jews and in that history of the Jews, Josephus gives us some contemporary accounts of some of the people that are in the Bible. John the Baptist, uh, James the brother of Jesus, Herod, Pilate, Tiberius, he names all those people. And for years and years and years, hundreds of years, Christians would cite this passage from Josephus as confirmation that Jesus was true. Josephus writes, About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah. And when, upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life, for the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so-called after him, has still not disappeared to this day. Now, we have to be honest about this. Would a Jewish historian in the first century write that Jesus was the Messiah? Maybe not. It's probably a later Christian copyist adding those things about Jesus into Josephus' his paragraph. 
Now, it doesn't mean we have to throw it all out. Josephus is a well-attested historian. He's well-respected by historians going back to ancient times. All right, but it, we can acknowledge that perhaps these Christian elements to this passage were added later. The good thing for us, though, is there's an Arabic translation that was found not too long ago, and it says essentially the same thing, but I'll read it to you without the Christian in, inserts. At this time, there was a wise man called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. Many people among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have reported wonders, and the tribe of the Christians so named after him has not appeared to this day. Now, Josephus, the historian, probably wrote that. It doesn't change the fact that he's not verifying for us the fact that Jesus existed. There's another historian in Rome writing just a few years later called Cornelius Tacitus. He's not writing specifically about Jesus. What he's writing about is a great fire in Rome in 64 AD. See, in 64 AD, two-thirds of the city of Rome burned. This was during the time of Nero, the emperor. And Tacitus wrote about these events in his history of the Roman Empire. He's writing about the aftermath, and he says this, But all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor and the appropriations of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration was the result of an order. You see, Tacitus is writing that Nero is blaming the Christians for the fire, but the rumors are that Tacitus ordered the fire because he wanted to do public works projects. So the fire happens, two-thirds of the city is burned, and now Tacitus is trying to blame the Christians. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name has its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procreators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then, upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred of mankind. To sum up, what Tacitus is saying is there was a great persecution of Christians because Nero was blaming them for the fire. What's important about this is it's a historian outside the Bible that tells us, one, there was a man named Christ. Two, by 64 AD in Rome, well far away from Jerusalem, there was a large number of Christians that could be persecuted. And what I find interesting is that he says, you know, the movement was almost snuffed out. And then it explodes again. And you know what that sounds to me like? It sounds like Pentecost. Like, we're just about, we got 12 guys left. They're all in hiding, and then Pentecost comes, and suddenly we have thousands of followers. So it's important for the historical record that we have people outside of the Bible attesting to the reality of Jesus Christ in the early church. Now I want to move on before it gets too hot today to talk about the unintentional corroboration of facts in the Bible. And here's where we're going to narrow things down really to the specific. 
What I mean by unintentional corroboration, I mean that two different sources or two different authors uh, are looking at or telling a story and they are filling in details for each other. So one author may have uh, something that's important to them that they throw into the story that another author leaves out. And then maybe there's a third version that kind of puts the two together. And you'll see how this works when we walk through it. First passage I'm going to read is from Matthew 20, verse 1. This is, a this is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Verses 1 and 2. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. You'll know the rest of the story. He sends the first guys out. He's going to pay them a denarius for the day. And then he finds other people looking to work later. And they all get paid the same amount in the end. We're not talking about the spiritual application or the theological application or what lesson Jesus was looking to tell us. I want to focus on the denarius. Jesus tells us the denarius is a day's wage. Remember Tacitus, the historian? Well, he writes in his uh, history of the Roman Empire that about 14 AD, there was a mutiny of Ro Roman soldiers. And the Roman soldiers were mutinying over their pay. They were not getting a day's wage, and they were demanding a denarius. Tacitus isn't Christian. We know Jesus is telling the truth already because we believe what Jesus says. But that little detail, Jesus calls a denarius a day's wage. We have an outside source that says at roughly the same time, a denarius is in fact a day's wage. How about the gospel writers themselves? Let's talk about Joseph of Arimathea for a second. Joseph of Arimathea was the man who asked Pilate for Jesus' body, buried him in his tomb for temporarily. And in Mark 15, 42 and 43, we read this. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. The story goes on that Pilate gives him permission to take the body. Now, that is in Mark. In all four of the Gospels, we have this account, but what they mostly do is just tell, basically, Joseph of Arimathea goes and asks for the body, he gets the body, and he buries him. They tell a general account. But why does Mark say, and the other three don't, that Joseph asked boldly? Well, if we look at John 1938, the same account we see in John's telling, later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. So why would Mark say that he asked boldly for the body? Well, John tells us. It's because he's afraid of the Jews and he's been a secret disciple all this time. But now that Jesus is put to death, Joseph of Arimathea boldly goes and asks for the body. He's no longer fearful of the Jews. He asks for the body. How about another example of the gospel writers unintentionally corroborating each other? If you turn to Matthew 26, 67, and 68, Jesus is before the Sanhedrin here, and he's just been accused of blasphemy, and what happens to him? We all know what happens to him, 67 and 68 in Matthew 26, 67 and 68. 
Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? Now that seems like an odd thing to say if you're slapping someone in the face. Wouldn't they know who it is that slapped you? Well, let's take a look at Luke and see what Luke has to say about the same event. In Luke 22, 63 to 65, the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking him and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. Matthew tells us they're just beating him up and saying, hey, tell us your God, to you know who's hitting you. And he doesn't explain that he's blindfolded. So the statement makes sense if we put the two together. Alone, Matthew's gospel, might you might say, well, why would anybody say that? But if you turn over to Luke, he unintentionally corroborates Matthew's story. We'll do one more, how about? In the feeding of the multitude, the feeding of the 5,000, John's account in 6, 1 through 13 says, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was, about, was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what was going on. We're going to stop there because what I'm going to focus on is, why would Jesus ask Philip, where are we going to get something to eat? The other gospel writers don't mention that he asks Philip anything. And why anyway, Philip? Of all the disciples, why would he ask Philip? Well, if you turn to John 1.44, we learn that Philip is from Bethsaida, the very place that Luke tells us this account happens. So Luke tells us this is in Bethsaida. John tells us he asks Philip. And we know from a completely different place in the gospel that Philip is from Bethsaida, which makes his request, Jesus' request of him logical. So at the end of the day, what does all this mean? I mean, it doesn't mean that God created the universe. It doesn't mean that God is real. What it means is, we can have confidence in our Bible, both the historical part of it and the spiritual part of it. Throughout the Bible, it's mixed together. We have a fact of a denarius, and we also have a lesson from Jesus in the story of the vineyard workers. We know that David had a united kingdom, and he also has applications for our lives spiritually. But we know that he's a real person. And at least to my mind, if you are true on the history, you have a foundation upon which we can also apply the spiritual and the theological. If the Bible's true, that we can, have, we can then have confidence to go out according to that great apologetic verse of 1 Peter 3.15, to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. I'd like to just give you a postscript on those three uh, co-workers of mine that thought that there was more evidence for the UFOs than there was for the Bible. You know, one of those three co-workers, we had moved on and we were working in different areas. One day he calls me up and he says, hey, I got to go, go talk to you. Can I meet you? 
So I'm thinking it has something to do with work, but I show up and he's got this great big smile on his face. He says, hey, Greg, I went to church for the first time last week. He goes, and not only that, I brought my family with me, and now we're all reading the Bible together. Now, it wasn't anything that I did. Like I said, my response was, hey, you guys are on your own. Good luck. The Holy Spirit must have got a hold of this one guy, and he's the guy that gave him the evidence that that person needed to come to Christ. And to this day, he still is a believer. So I'm just going to leave you with one thing. We looked at a lot of details today. Sometimes people will say, the devil is in the details, just not these details. Thank you.